Hi, this is Alana with another episode of Dealing with Donor Conception. And today I'm really excited to share with you an interview with a fantastic playwright named Jane Coffarella. Uh, Jane is a former journalist. Uh, she lives in Australia, but her plays have been performed both nationally and internationally in, in the UK, the US, and Singapore, and it, they've been translated into Turkish and Tamil. And she wrote um, two full-length plays that are very important, but today we're going to discuss D-Baby. So D-Baby is a full-length play about a donor-conceived teenager searching for her true identity and was named a finalist in the 2018 International Playwriting Co Competition, uh, New Works of Merit, based in New York, and it's published by Australian Plays. Jane, thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Alana. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm, th I'm so excited to have you on the podcast and talk about this play. I've, there's... A lot of extreme opinions about reproductive technologies, and I was delighted to read your play just because you seem like such a, just like a normal, thoughtful person looking for, you know, trying to answer life's questions and, and do well and, and be a good person. And you're grappling with these questions that a lot of us are grappling with, but you're not so heavy handed with, I don't know. If you, you, you must have strong opinions on some level, but with this play, it's just really inquisitive and beautifully written. And so I'm, I'm so excited to have you on to talk about it. Well, um, a play, uh, unlike other people who write about donor conception, I'm in a very different position because a play cannot be a polemic. Mm -hmm. um, the aim of the play is to... Uh, shine a light on a subject or and to raise debate and to get people thinking um, because if you have a play that says you must think this then you're going to alienate half the audience so my my aim was to be compassionate to both sides and um and to just shine a light and so um it's good that you don't think that i've got strong opinions because that was the aim yeah it really comes through and compassion is is really important with this topic for for all angles because there's people who are you know truly suffering you know truly suffering um but what what first brought you into this whole conversation because everybody's got a story as to why they started to think about reproductive technologies well, when I was a journalist, I worked for The Age, which is like a daily broadsheet in Melbourne. And um, I worked for a section called Accent, which focused on issues affecting women and uh, a lot of social issues. And we did a lot of stuff on um, surrogacy and uh, reproductive technology in the days when that was a very new area. And uh, there was a, a woman here um, in Melbourne called Maggie Kirkman, whose sister, um, she had a baby for her. And I interviewed them as part of our my my brief, and that's what really got me interested because what 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 seemed very fascinating to me at the time was the relationship between the the, the intended parent and the surrogate, mm -hmm. and in that case it was sisters, so there was a totally different dynamic. Um, 
and that was a very controversial uh, issue at the time. And then um, we moved to Bangkok for my husband's work, and uh, I met a woman there who had had all her children by a surrogate, a surrogate in the U.S. Wow. And I, I interviewed her, and um, and uh, the story never went ahead because there were legal issues. Uh, and uh, also Australia was a bit myopic about that sort of thing. And because she wasn't Australian, uh, they weren't interested in publishing. But the story really stayed with me. And particularly, um, even though she didn't speak very much about the surrogate herself, I was very interested in that relationship and why somebody would do it if they didn't have to. Because uh, it seems like an obvious thing, but there was a lot of focus in the Australian media about um, surrogacy in India and Thailand, but uh, there's not much focus on commercial surrogacy. So I was interested in in why someone would do it. So um, I I had thought it would make a, a really good play. And so later on, we moved to Singapore and I had a lot of time because I couldn't work commercially as a journalist there. Um, I had a business in Melbourne, but you can't have uh, commercial, you can't have interests in both countries, or you get taxed twice. So therefore, I was free to write. So I spent my days, first of all, on YouTube looking at surrogates online, mm-hmm. and I was astonished at this world that completely opened up, um, where this was a norm to go to a hospital and have a baby and bring home a check was a norm, and right. so. Um, and I was very interested in that relationship and why, as I said, why they would do it. And what really intrigued me was the fact that um, so many Christian women did it. Mm-hmm. And and for me, it sort of became clear that, or my my opinion, that it really tapped into this whole notion of what it meant to be a good woman. You know that um, you know this sense of sacrifice that really tapped into a sort of a, a social norms about that. And so um, so. I, I sort of was drawn into this completely different world and I lurked on sites for a long time before I actually started writing. And uh, so I wrote that play E-Baby, which was about the relationship between an expat living in London and uh, the surrogate she hires in New York. And as an expat myself, I knew that sort of that uh, enabled a sort, a sort of sort of detachment because when you're an expat, you you um, are sort of free in an, another way to sort of um, have another identity. You mm. leave behind what you knew. And um, and also it uh, encouraged sort of secrecy. So um, so eBaby went ahead and uh, it was produced in Melbourne in 2015 and we had a and a afterwards. And at that Q&A, which was attended by all sides, so I, I had a surrogate uh, on the panel. I had people from IVF companies and Melbourne IVF, and I had, um, uh, also, you know, the feminists, the complete, complete uh, two sides of the of the debate. And it was a huge uh, fun fight. Of course, everybody was so divided. And the question wow. was uh yeah, it was it was incredible you know people demand saying well i have a right to have a child and other people saying no you do not and um so anyway the question was raised at that q a what about the child and e-baby necessarily hadn't been about the child that had been about the relationship and the child was sort of the product of that relationship um and it was Sort of to me, it was uh, the sort of a mission rather than commission. Like it was clear to me in the, like writing the play that that it was that the child wasn't the issue, and that was the point I was making. It was the relationship. Anyway, so I decided I would address that question in another play, 
And so that D baby came about. Wow. That's great. I, that's fascinating. So I wish I was in that room when you had that panel discussion. I, I've had some similar experiences uh, to movies that have come out where I went to the premiere and there was panel discussions and it can get heated. People can raise their voices and walk out and, and threaten violence. Like this is a, is this a topic that gets to the, you know, the core of people's identities. Yes, I had no idea because at the play, what happened was that uh, people didn't leave. They came out of the, the theatre and they were arguing and they, there was sort of some people thought Catherine was a monster and other people thought she was fantastic and other people thought Nellie the surrogate was con- manipulative. And, and so they would debate and it just sort of, so it really raised, um, it raised uh, uh, questions in people's minds and I was really surprised at the reaction. Wow. Well, I, I love this question that you asked about, you know, what does it mean to be a good woman and that you were surprised that so many Christian women were, were doing this. And, um, I, I'm, I was uh, intrigued by the re- religious questions that you brought into the D baby play. And you also um, bring in Greek mythology. So th- the story of Ion, um, I'm saying that right. Ion. That's right. That's right. Euripides Ion. And, yes. and and so the, the, we are talking about the you know creation itself, and I had a an interviewee for last episode who's who was talking about how reproductive technologies can literally alter the human race because we're dealing with creation itself itself and who has the right to you know create new lives, and so can you talk more about what was going on in your head about? religion and mythology and, and, and yes, creation. I'm not a religious person myself. I wasn't raised religiously, um, but I am absolutely fascinated by the moral dilemmas that uh, religious belief creates in, in, and that highlights the moral dilemmas that exist for everybody. And um, so with the ION, it was just a chance. I was looking through plays in a bookshop in Singapore. I was always looking for plays for inspiration and to learn my craft. And I came across that play and I hadn't studied it or learned anything about it. And I read it and I thought the parallels between what's happening in today's world with um, reproductive technologies were so strong. I mean, it was, it was a play about a, a child who was born of, the rape between Athena and Apollo mm. and uh, is sent um, to, to Delphi to be a, a sort of temple slave. And he doesn't know his true identity. And meanwhile, Athena is, uh, is looking for him and comes to Delphi to consult the Oracle. And, um, and the events turn out that she discovers him. And um, of course they, uh, they don't recognize that they sort of recognize each other, but they don't. And there's, a battle between them and uh, she he tries to she tries to kill him in fact before she discovers that um she tries child. to kill her own son yes because um she's led to believe that uh that he is um going to uh that her 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 um husband is going to adopt him and um and then she will be sort of isolated. That's a complicated story. But anyway, so there are parallels were really interesting. And I thought this, this is incredible. This is, this is mythic. This goes right back. And I, I thought the parallels to um, the gods being like the technology that enables donor conception mm. and 
and you know, even though this was a very ancient play, I, I had referenced Anonymous Us in in um, my research and the donor sibling registry. And a lot of the emotions that people were expressing on Anonymous Us and in various forums were very similar to the emotions that um, Ion and, and Athena were expressing in this play. And yeah. so I thought it's just this is an amazing parallel and it would be terrific if the characters who are teenagers um, uh, in their senior year would be studying this play to sort of highlight that difference. To, to highlight that that similarity, and um, so I thought that was a a good um, device to sort of highlight the the um, the fact that, as you say, that these issues go back to creation, and that they were wrong then, and they're <laughs> wrong now. You know? Yeah, we. So, if you if the um, if you're not a student of history, you're bound to make repeat the same mistakes. Yes. Uh, yeah, the protagonist in your play, at one point she says, poor Ion, his father disowns him and his mother tries to kill him. And yes. I, I I, haven't studied Ion or Greek mythology. I consider myself a little bit undereducated in the literature department, but I just really appreciate um, uh, the connecting it with, it's not a new thing. Like reproductive technologies, people think it's, it's so new, but I have said this many times it's it's it it might be a new type of fatherlessness that i experienced through donor conception but you you can expect donor conceived kids through sperm donation to, to to experience a lot of the same issues that kids who have been fatherless for any other reason you know to to deal yeah. and grapple with so i appreciate you tying in the history um so I was just, you know, so a lot of things really fell into place with this play. Like um, when I when I look back on it, and um, I realised that a lot of the things that I'd used were sort of had fertility symbolism and all sorts of sort of strange things sort of came about to create sort of a, a, a much more complex play than I had first intended. But just sort of uh, in, in terms of the symbolism and an analogies to other things, and, and Ion was was um, very much part of that, and. Um, yeah, it was uh, I think really helpful because all the emotions that were that these characters in this ancient play were going through were so similar. It, it was very well done. I I would love to ask you about you, you know you made a lot of different choices and even though you're Australian yourself, you chose to set the play in Boston, in the United States, and I'm curious as to. Or could you just tell us more about that decision and um, and how it affects yeah. the overall, you know, message? Yes. Because uh, commercial surrogacy is outlawed in Australia, although there is a push to change that, um, the argument here is that uh, surrogates deserve to be paid because they're out of pocket and therefore we should make it commercial because that would help them. But, of course, I know it's much more complex than that, and so there's a debate about that. But so the commercial surrogacy that exists in the, in the U.S. doesn't exist here. And I think it was far more interesting for me to have that... Um, inclusion of the of the payment to the commercial aspect sort of because in some ways it's um it's not really highlighted it's you know people sort of say they don't do it for the money but on the other hand the money is an issue as well so i thought that added another layer and uh and also australia is quite a secular country compared to the u.s 
And so I was much more interested in the moral dilemmas, as I said, that um, religion created through this. So, and also um, because um, in, in eBaby was set in Boston too, because uh, the expat in that, her name was Catherine, she works in London and it was easy for her to get, she also worked in New York, so she went back and forth. And I just think um, it is much more interesting to see the whole issue on a global sort of stage and then because eBaby was set in London and it is a companion, D-Baby is a companion play but not a sequel, I wanted to also set D-Baby there because I wanted to sort of imagine that while Catherine and Nellie are negotiating the issues of surrogacy in one part of the world and Nellie's living nearby in Boston, in another part of Boston there are Dee and, um, and her mother June mm-hmm. negotiating this whole thing of um, donor conception and the secrecy that surrounded that that uh, issue for them, and uh, so and, and to me because I'd done all the research, it was a familiar it was a familiar sort of setup, right. and I wanted it to be linked. That's smart. That it makes it easier for producers. Um, yes. And what's your what's your goals for? Uh, spreading the play in the u.s and how easy is it for people to to find the the play put it on perform it for their schools or communities and kind of take it on for their own um, Um, cities well it's available through australian plays and they can you can just google that or you can google me um but it's interesting producing plays is quite a complex issue and um it really depends on people sort of, uh, it depends on sort of all sorts of things falling into line. And in commercial producing, it uh, first of all depends on the artistic directors wanting to 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 highlight that story, to, to fall in love with the play and to want to tell that story. And then it depends on commercial interests like money, how many characters you have in a play and also how complex it is to produce. Mm-hmm. And so these are things that affect commercial production. Um, but D-Baby is, uh, I mean, it could be produced by schools. I have somebody here um, in an Australian private school who's actually South African, but and she's a dramaturg, and she was quite interested in producing it for a school here, so it can be produced for schools. It has um, two main characters, D, um, who's short for Deirdre, mm-hmm. and Zach, uh, her colleague, and uh, senior, her mother June and her and then Tess, another character, and then there are some voiceovers. So it's really four with some voiceovers. Um, so it's available for anyone to produce. It's been produced, it's been had rehearsed readings in Singapore, in Melbourne, in Hobart, and in Sydney. So that rehearsed readings are used to test the play. And in Singapore, uh, I tested it in an American school, uh, the drama students at an American school, because I needed to test the Americanisms, as we call them, and the relationship to sort of test whether that felt real. And, uh, and they really loved it. In fact, they fell in love with Zach. All the girls fell in love with Zach. Did they? <laughs> Yeah, I felt like I'd written um, Twilight or something. They, <laughs> they all wanted a boyfriend like him. So um, anyway, the play is available to produce. All they have to do is uh, contact Australian plays. And with um, production, what they do is they pay, pay a licensing fee, which is usually 10% of the box office. So okay. um, once, you, once you receive the play, then um, you hire a director you you cast the play and then you produce it and the uh, playwright gets part of the box office. So that's how it works. Interesting. Well, the, the, 
I would suggest that anybody considering selling their eggs instead think about producing this play and selling box office tickets instead because the, the young women um, as egg donors is, is a big deal to me. And a lot of these college, you know, college campus canvassing and there's egg donors in the play is also another big theme. Um, yes. And I, you know, Boston, New York, these are really expensive American cities and you're getting to the heart of like the commercialism and it's, it's hard. I think a lot of donor conceived people, and I want to do a podcast on this are, they have a hard time grappling with what is commercial space and what is kind of sacred space. And I think a lot of us lean towards um, like socialism where either, you know, everything's provided for or free, you know, quote unquote free. And that the, with the ideas of reproductive technologies, we need to just take a hard look at, 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 money and life and what should be for sale and what shouldn't be for sale. And, and there's, you have a lot of symbolism in the play. Um, there's credit card transactions and there's, you know, paying for college and there's these, these money is like an issue. Like people, she can't afford to take a train to New York, you know, money is an issue. And so, and you also, there's a reference in the, in the play talking about, you know, free kidneys. And so, and we know that kidneys and other organs are not for sale. So do you have any commentary about when you were writing, like, how do you deal with the money issue and, and, and this being a commercial trade? Um, Yeah. I wanted to highlight the fact that, uh, um, you know, because IVF is a very expensive operation. And so for a lot of people, and I've done stories about this in Australia, people mortgaging their house to pay for IVF mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, selling their worldly goods. And for June, the character in the play and, and her husband, Matt, I mean, the expense of IVF in, in obtaining this child was a huge thing. And then, of course, in the play, um, he's no longer with her and she's a sole parent. And so um, she works at the Boston Herald and she's struggling as a sole parent, even though it's a, it's a reasonable job. She's not a high up journalist. She's just working on supplements. Um, so uh, I have uh, been the, the child of a single parent for a while. And when my mother was, um, my, my father broke up and I know what it's like. So I wanted to reference that where, where it was a struggle. And um, so, and the commercial theme, the money theme is, as you say, all the way through it as, um, as a sort of a, a um, reference to the transactional relationship that resulted in D and mm-hmm. throughout the whole thing to when she, she and Zach are, are trying to um, get some information and who, who they get the ancestry.com kit and they, you know, she wants to know her identity. Of course, uh, in, in trying to search for her identity, she does what her mother did really in terms of keeping secrets and she starts keeping secrets and she starts telling lies and doing all that sort of thing and she borrows she borrows Zach's credit card um and uh so there's a whole reference all the way through to the fact that uh June is keeping secrets uh, while she's seeing a therapist to try and sort of find the right time to tell at the same time um 
Dee is, is going behind her back to try and find her identity and committing the same sort of, uh, you know, um, call sins, yeah. in doing so. So one sort of set of secrecy and lies begets another. And so, um, and the transactional thing that Crassus had created, Dee, is then goes on to be part of how she, how she discovers her identity. She has to basically lie and cheat to, to find out who she is. Right. And so and the whole thing is a sort of a, a circular thing. But one of the things about the play that is different, I think, from many other things written about donor conception is that donor conception is most often written about from the point of the view of the people seeking to create the child. Mm-hmm. In Australia, the emphasis, the, the Australian media is very, um, well, they've drunk the cool, Kool-Aid on this sort of thing and they're very unquestioning. The whole of the emphasis is on you know, the beautiful story of uh, providing a child to an infantile family. They don't question anything else. And so I really wanted to reverse that and write from the point of view of the donor-conceived person and to, you know, to sort of show how it affected them rather than how it affects the people who actually have the baby. And so um, that's not necessarily a popular perspective here um, because uh, it's that sort of, as you find in Anonymous Us, and um, there's a sort of whole notion that people should be grateful and should get over it. And so that's another theme in the play where Dee has to deal with that sort of sense that she should be grateful and that uh, and that her emotions should be suppressed. And I think that's one of the hardest things for donor conceived people is that they do love their parents and they are grateful to their parents, but it doesn't deny the fact that, um, you know, these issues of loss and identity uh, are huge. And um, as you, I think your previous um, podcast interview was with someone who sort of said, and I agree with this, and the play highlights this, that um, for everybody else, these issues are acceptable. Like, you know, um, in the play, June is watching a program about genealogy. And for that, everybody else is excited about their genealogy and their background. But for, for donor-conceived people, this is something that um, they're told is not important to them. So D in the play has to confront all these issues. And this is something that, as I said, is not really discussed uh, outside donor-conceived circles in Australia. I, I appreciate the attention that you did. I, I found that you you did make the donor-conceived people believable, and and if if you used anonymous us as a as a tool, I'm so uh, honored that you chose to refer to the site or that you even read the site in order to develop these characters. It's a, it's a huge compliment um, to the work I've done. And, and one of the tough parts about anonymous us um, and managing it, managing the site is that everybody submits their story anonymously. So I don't get to know the writers. And so it's a, it's a very rare occasion for me where I can connect with an actual human being and talk to them based off of the, the website. And, um, I think that you grappled really well with the the questions that the donor can see people are are asking themselves and um, and doing the search. I think it's, it's a really good capsule. And w- what's hard too, being donor conceived, is you don't want to talk about your issues all the time. Like you don't want to be a slave to your misery, and you need you, you kind of got to get over it at some point and just and, and enjoy life. And I'm saying this because I've been 
engulfed with this topic, completely engulfed where it takes over my life and I just have become depressed. And so it's really nice to have someone else do that work where you've got to play and people are talking about the issues without having to have a donor conceived person bear their soul to an audience, you know. Well, one of the things I say in the the intro to the play is that um, all of these uh, things are possible, but this is entirely fictional. These are entirely fictional people and um, it's based on fact, but it's possible, but it's not, not, um, it's not anybody's particular story. Perhaps it's everybody's story. Um, There's a lot of humor in the play too, because I think that um, that's really important to, in any story, you can't just have misery and it's not a miserable play. It's um, very funny and they're teenagers. So of course they, they, you know, they say funny things and things, but I think the, the whole, whole message of the play eventually is that um, it's, it's not something that can be hidden. And in the end, um, things are out of control for everybody because it's in this day and age, particularly with the, the research that kids can do, it's not possible to keep these secrets even if you want to. And that the complications that arise that when people think it's going to be one simple transaction, they're going to have a baby, the complications that arise from that go on and on and on in the same way as they did for Ion. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's perpetuating um, issues. But I really hope that people who, I hope that it's produced in the U.S. That's something I would really love because, of course, it's set in the U.S. and has a lot of relevance there. And um, I think it would be great to test it in that audience. Um, but the thing is, I really hope that uh, it's, as I said, it shines a light for people on what it actually means. And beyond the newspaper headlines, what it means for real people to go through this and, and the long-term consequences of it and also the aim of the play is to entertain as well i mean that's the whole thing it's theater is it's a transformative um event when you go to the theater and unlike when you read a blog or something where you can say well i really appreciate what that person went through when you go through when you go to the theater and you watch people acting this and you watch them go through those emotions the audience becomes like another character in the play and the audience goes through that transformation with the character together so I think that's really a a great way to talk about the issue of donor conception because people in the theatre will experience it together and so I really hope that um, somebody picks it up and produces it and uh, that it goes on from there. Oh I hope so too I and it would be so great if this were performed at Harvard or, you know, Boston College, like the, it's set in that area. And those girls are being the, the, those, you know, they're being sought out for their eggs, the, you know, and they have high debt and they're going to school and they don't, they haven't thought about this, you know, they're 19, 20 years old, but being um, targeted for, for their eggs. And so this would be a perfect play um, to set off there. I hope somebody does pick it up um, who's competent and capable and can really, you know, take it home. Um, I I loved one of the scenes where you had these voiceovers from various players, uh, egg donors, recipients. Um, and what struck me was one of the egg donors um, talking about how she, she shaved her head for a, a friend who had, I think, I believe it was cancer. And and so she gave away her hair and now she's, she, she sold her eggs and part of her um, 
fee from the egg donation is going to pay for her to get uh, hair extensions. And then, and later in the in the play, there was uh, D said something about um, you know egg donors. Just she hoped that you, you know, her, yeah, she hoped her, her I egg donor hadn't hadn't um hadn't hadn't been one of those people. Yeah, who's for a boob job or hair extensions? I didn't want to give away the um, but yeah, too much. But that was true. I mean, I sat there looking at all these YouTube things for research, and it was quite astonishing. I mean, it, you know, there were there were these uh, girls who were just talking about also dreadful things that had happened to them, and they they were sort of taking personal responsibility for it that they should have done this or they should have done that, and they they weren't didn't have awareness of what would really happen to them. You know, just and uh, it was really sad. I remember one video of some girl; she was sitting in a giraffe suit because she was depressed and she felt sort of that would cheer her up and telling the most this most dreadful story about her experience as an egg donor mm. so there's a whole world out there so it was very I had many many egg donors on that I had to cut it right back but um I just wanted to highlight when Dee's searching um, this is what when she's searching about the issue this is what she sees and she they also um they do a search on um a uh a, a website looking at sperm donors mm-hmm. and uh, in that scene um, that's that's between Z- d and zach that's quite funny because i mean what is normal in the in the uh, donor conception world is not normal outside it and so this is what happened with the e-baby when i was talking about the contract scene in e-baby i really worried that that would be very boring for the audience but they laughed because for them, this was new and they thought it was so unreal that they thought it was funny. They didn't know that it was all true. Yeah, right. And the same with the egg donation scene when in the rehearsed reading. Um, people laughed because it's, it was so bizarre. But this is, but when you're in this world yourself, it becomes the norm. So it's very interesting to see audiences' reactions to these things when they haven't actually had any experience of it. And, and then you realise the strangeness of it all. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I I get what you're saying there, and I I think just again that question of what does it mean to be a good woman, the the what does it mean to be a good person? Because you're selling yourself. Like when you're an egg donor or a sperm donor, you're you're basically making an ad. It's like very similar to dating profiles where you're trying to sell yourself. Where someone's like, okay, I'm going to make a copy of that person, or they they probably don't hope that it's a copy of them. Um, they that it, it just close and you know, you want it to match your partner, your husband, or you want it to match your wife, you know, but, but no one's going to buy you or buy your sperm or buy your eggs if you don't meet a certain standard. But it's really interesting because every now and then you get an egg donor who's honest about why they're doing it. So like you have to say that you're doing it for altruistic reasons. You have to say that you just want to help an infertile couple. But then sometimes the people they're honest, like, I just want to pay for a boob job. And (laughs) And it's yeah. funny, but it's also sad. And the children, the donor conceived people, nobody wants to be from that person. Oh, my my egg donor mother did this for a boob job. Nobody wants to come from that. And so there's a lot of things to explore and ideas to explore here. And I think a lot of the egg donors who who do this are like, Why do you why do you sell your eggs? Um, a lot of them are doing it so that they could be more attractive in the dating market, you know. They wanna they want hair extensions to be more attractive in the dating market. They want 
to afford travel to be more attractive in the dating market. But, but they don't realize that if the reason the, the infertile women are buying their eggs is, is the same thing that makes them attractive in the dating market, which is, you know, looks, you're, yes. and you're fertile and you have books and, so it's a whole catalogue. So Dee is confronted when she's looking at sperm donors and she's looking at egg donors. She's confronted with the whole idea that it's a catalogue. But when she, when she actually, um, I don't want to give away too much, but the thing that she eventually asks from the person that she, um, that she meets, um, then the thing that she wants most, she asks not only just for medical information, but she asks for her stories. She said, I want your stories. And she says, tell me a story. Tell me a story that everyone else in the family knows. Right. And um, this person is confronted by that and has to think of something because when you don't have your identity, not just the looks and things you get from your family, but you get this family stories and the whole sort of narrative and, and sort of sense of identity that comes from that. And so, um, she, you know, D, D wants that part of her identity as well. So it's not just the catalogue of whether you have the, you know, whether you've got the green eyes or the blue eyes or, or the, of your donor, but it's sort of that whole sort of thing of what makes a person and what makes a person is their history and right. their story and what they went through and the family stories and things. And, and that's what D wants. And I think that's a really important part of, um, of identity and, and that's that sense of loss. Um, for donor conceived people and I think so people will say well I'm not donor conceived I'm mean, how do you know all this and everything and it's only through writing these two plays that I realized why I'm so fascinated with these issues and that is because I've had a lot of family loss um, something happened in my family that um, that uh, it left just my mother and me we didn't see um, my father my sister or any of my relatives for many years I didn't see my sister for 20 years I didn't wow. see my father for about 20 years and, and it's only really in, in 2016 when most of the players in this scenario had died and I went to a family funeral I got a phone call to somebody had died. I'm sorry my dog is barking and I went to this funeral looking for my cousin that I hadn't seen for 38 years and she went looking for me and so um, I realised in hindsight that um, that reason I'm interested in these excuses because I do understand that loss right so, um, it, it, you 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 write about it very very well and I am so sorry about my dog I should have put him outside um but we I, that is um I think pe people can relate they can it's a new type of something familiar it's familiar because there's a lot of different kinds of ways that people experience loss. And this is just a new way that we're doing it deliberately. And we're doing it with the, uh, we're now monetizing it. Like people get financial rewards for doing it, which is why I think it's captivating a lot of our imagination. Uh, the deliberate part of it, the fact that, you know, cause of course we have the analogy of adoption, but it, adoption was a, a and evil sort of well, a, a difficult situation, uh, the best scenario out of a difficult situation, but it wasn't a deliberate creation. Right. Right. So, so, um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, 
but as you say, like you know, you don't need people. That's part of your identity, but you you don't want it to engulf you. But I think it's important people need to actually uh, explore it, address it, and acknowledge it so that they can move on. I agree. Uh, Jane, we're at our 46 minute mark or 45 minute mark and the, my dog is going crazy. So, um, I, I just want to promote your work to this audience and really encourage people to, to look up D baby. I'm going to put a link to the play in the show notes so people can download it, read it. Um, think about whether this is something that they can bring to their town and and really get the community talking about it because you know we didn't get a chance to talk about the power of of art and there's some symbolism in the play about art and and assisted reproductive technologies art but uh the the best way to get people to think about these ideas isn't to just tell them your opinion i've learned this the hard way you can't just tell people no you should do this or you should do that like the best way to get people to just is make them make them think about it themselves because people are smart and and um so i'll give a, a download link so that they can think about whether or not this is something they can do for their thank town so their much. community right okay well that's You're wonderful thank, thank you very much alana lovely to speak to you oh thank you so much okay that's jane Caffarella, uh australian playwright and uh fantastic writer and author. And I just uh, thank you guys for listening to this podcast. This is dealing with donor conception. Um, Thank you, Jane, for being on the show. And we look forward to another episode next week.